Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, our guest is Flynn Disney, and I'm really excited to share about Flynn. But first, I've got um, some news for you guys. We're really excited we have opened up our retreats for this year. Last year, we had to cancel all of our retreats due to the impacts of COVID-19 and been, been waiting to see the epidemic come down to levels where we felt safe opening up our events. It's finally happened, and we have just two spots left as of my recording of this for our uh, July retreat and 17 spots left for our autumn retreat, which are only two retreats of the years. Um, when we announce this, usually they sell it within a week. So if you're hearing this on Monday, you definitely want to jump on and hit the link in, in, the, in the description and make sure to jump on a call with me. We only take groups of about 20 people and we like to talk to everyone who's going to come and make sure that they're going to be an amazing fit for the event. It's really unlike anything else you'll experience. Um, there is, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's where we put together all of the themes that make Evolve Move Play what it is, right? It's a deep dive into movement, into moving and understanding how to take care of your body, body integrity, moving through the environment, exploring some of the most amazing nature the Pacific Northwest has to offer, everything from sprawling cedar trees to climbs through waterfalls to natural water slides to amazing sandstone boulders. Um, yeah, it's, it's spectacular. And we're also going to be playing with sticks and balls and ropes, learning to manipulate objects. We're going to be playing a lot with each other, lots of uh, interaction, everything from a contact BI dance based stuff all the way up to mixed martial arts based stuff and even cooperative work. And we'll be introducing you guys to nature connection practices, to making fire, to tracking, to uh, picking wild berries. And we're going to be having a meditative contemplative component really bringing together all these ecologies of practice. And there'll be storytelling and music and everything that goes into really creating an experience of deep tribal connection based around movement. Um, so if you're interested in that, this is the time to get involved. Don't miss it. Um, yeah, I hope to see you guys there. So my guest this week, as I mentioned, is Flynn Disney. Flynn was brought to my attention by Callum Powell from Storer, who's been a guest on the podcast as well and has become a big supporter. And he said that he thought he was one of the most interesting thinkers in particular talking about the topic of fear. And so I looked into Flynn's work and I was really surprised that he and I had never had the chance to talk before, had noticed each other before because he's been around the parkour community for a long time. And he seems to be treading a lot of the same waters uh, philosophically and intellectually that I am. Um, he's applying things like polyvagal theory to understand fear in parkour and looking at you know archetypal uh, understandings of human psychology and how those impact how we approach our movement practice and how we get meaning out of it. So 
um, once I saw what Flynn was up to, I was like, oh man, this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Indeed, I, I thought it was, and I'm really excited to, to keep bringing Flynn on and, uh, you know, help him get his insights out into the world. Cause it's, I think there's not enough people who are deeply thinking about, um, the philosophical aspect of, you know, living a good life and growing and having a more meaningful life as a human being who also have a really deep movement practice and can root it in that. And uh, Flynn is a, a really wonderful example of that. So I think you guys are gonna enjoy this conversation very much. Without further ado, Flynn Disney. So Flynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really good to have you. I, I, I've, I feel like I've known your name for a while, like, and I've always been like, is that a real name? Yeah, it stands out. <laughs> um, but uh, but I wasn't really familiar with your work. And I'm not really sure if we've been Facebook friends for a while or, or anything. But it was actually Callum Powell from Storer who sent me a, a message. And he was just uh, sending me a message about how much he'd been enjoying the podcast. And, you know, I was, okay, well, what, are, you know, I was asking what he was interested in and, you know, kind of picking his brain. And he was like, you know, the guy you should really have on is Flynn Disney. And, um, and he said that uh, he has the best understanding of fear and how to approach it of anybody in the parkour community, which is really quite a claim from it's quite a claim. <laughs> yeah, from a guy who, uh, who who's famous for jumping between skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I figured that'd be a good place to start. Why is it that uh, you, of all people, are the person that Callum Powell wants uh, to be speaking about fear on this podcast. Yeah, wonderful. What could that possibly be? I, I, I think the what I can bring to the table, which is perhaps unique, is variety. Mm -hmm. And this is a perhaps broader range of perspectives to answer this question of what is fear? How do we deal with fear? My perspective on questions like like this are uh, it, it's always a pluralistic one in, in the sense that I, I think the answer that we get depends on the question that we ask and uh, the way that I've come to understand fear is naturally as, as an embodied sense but what that really means is uh, for me is uh, visceral so it's really relating to the internal experiences at a, uh, I guess you could say, interoceptive level, level. So we're already using quite a lot of jargon, but yeah, yeah. Um, interoceptive in the sense of the sense of what the what is happening inside the body. So whether this is the sense of the heartbeat or the sense of the uh, contraction of the gut, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot to answer within that question. So I've studied a lot, I suppose, risk and risk management, risk reduction, um, mitigation of consequence, things like this. Mm -hmm. But what I'm really interested in is the uh, sort of guidance system of the body for dealing with danger. And so that's what we could perhaps call intuition. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's become something quite, uh, quite fascinating for me with my own training and working with students and these sort of different uh, interoceptive signals and perhaps what they mean specifically so i can can speak more more about this and uh i mean these ideas are already encoded within our language so we have something like uh, courage right the root word is the, the heart so this is already yep. sort of relating to the to the viscera in the sense and 
So in the sense, when you're using viscera, you're using it as a term for the, the, the internal organs in general, as opposed to say the, the, the intestines and stomach in particular. Yeah, I, I believe it's correct to say the viscera referring to all the internal the, organs, the, the, broad, the broader internal organs. Yeah. Perhaps I'm being anachronistic. But yeah, okay. I'm not 100 percent sure, but uh, but but it'll 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 work for us. So okay, so yeah, we so there's a couple of interesting things. So I think you know for the audience, obviously, it's it's very useful to be to be aware that essentially we're always. In, in motor problems, right? And movement is something that, you know, and are, are fundamentally interested in. There's always a, a perceptual component, right? What are we perceiving that's guiding our capacity for movement? Um, and our perceptions are divided between external perception, right? What we see outside of us, what we perceive outside of us, what we feel, touch, smell, uh, the classic five senses, and then the interior perceptions, right? Can I, Kinesio perception and proprioception and you know uh, perception of of the state of, of the internal organs um and your so, yeah so i suppose what i'm interested in is how well do these senses represent what is actually going on sure okay and what is actually going on can only really be understood in terms of what the consequences of our actions are in a sense so i can only really uh, know how accurate my intuition is for you know jumping across the skyscraper mm -hmm. if i if i you know succeed or succeed or fail um <laughs> well then actually, you you know, yeah then you <laughs> do you know yeah that's a different question life after death but um yeah so the thing that i came to explore in, in particular maybe what Callum's speaking about is um the attribution of meaning to specific sensations within the body to specific sort of outcomes so i suppose i think about it like a um a sort of threshold of fear wherein if we're under this threshold we're experiencing fear we experience a sort of increased heart rate uh, then we're in this sort of state of potential courage but we maybe feel some resistance towards moving forward whether this is you know jumping across a, a, a space or whether this is you know go speak to the pretty girl on the subway whatever this is there's a threshold of, of fear, it seems, where the heart is the dominant interoceptive signal. And it seems that beyond this threshold, there's a point where the gut seems to be the, the, uh, the dominant signal. And this varies hugely from person to person. And uh, some people, like I said, I spoke to um, uh, Daniel Lillebacker about this. We'll maybe speak about that later. But uh, and, I, and I asked him this question, if he ever experiences this sort of um, visceral contraction as someone who's pushed the uh, sort of movement game further than anyone else. And he said that he, he had not. But I've experienced this a lot with people who are maybe not so familiar to putting themselves into these uh, this sort of risk environment, and particularly in women as well, uh, yeah. who, who seem to perhaps have a this sort of richer inner world, which is, I think, I think a, it's a very interesting perspective that this richness of inner experience also relates to this visceral experience, which perhaps then relates to the uh, sort of deeper levels of re res resolution within um, uh, psychological experience. But that's again, maybe a different conversation. Yeah, the, a bunch of stuff you're, you're throwing out there that it'd be, it'd be rich grounds for conversation. Um, just to, to index it for the audience, there is a finding within neurobiology, I believe, that women seem to have sort of 
generally higher sensitivity to internal perception, right? Um, their skin's thinner, they have more touch receptors, I believe. Um, there's a, the, the emotions, you know, the, the, the hormonal association with emotions seems to peak higher in women than men, I believe. But I'm not 100% certain about this. And there's all, all sorts of debates around the, the, the way in which culture genders us versus, um, versus how our biology kind of informs us. Um, I'm definitely tend to think that, uh, that, that we've, uh, as we're over attributing to, to culture for various reasons right now, but I don't think that I know enough about this particular subject to, uh, to state that with certainty. Um, so that, that's an interesting thing, but, um, I, I kind of want to ground it. So we, so one thing that's really valuable to understand about emotion is that there is a there's a level of subjectivity or cultural construction on top of an underlying neurohormonal system, and that neurohormonal system is different, like as you mentioned, potentially between men and women, but also different potentially between inter-individual, right? Absolutely. Um, so. You know, when you when we talk about fear, you're mentioning the gut and the heart, and that that rings true for me in a, an embodied sense. But also, we're talking about the amygdala, in particular, in the brain, as being associated with this sense of arousal and threat detection. And you know, neurohormonally, we're talking about cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, um, and you know, presumably some other uh, some other neurohormones. One of the things yeah. that I I remember reading and this is this is something that people should take with a big grain of salt but i thought this was quite interesting is that um one finding that that, that seems to be true between men and women is that women tend to have a longer half-life for emotions so when cortisol rises in response to stress it tends to take longer to to essentially be depleted in the system okay. for women in general compared to men um, that's my understanding and so risk-taking, risk-taking behavior is predicted basically in some sense by how, how quickly you can resolve, how you, quickly you can kind of come down from things, but also some of these neurological associations. And I believe it was that, um, I can't remember exactly if it was the acetylcholine system or the dopamine system that was associated with essentially that experience of elation that happens directly after feeling intense fear and that that appears to be more common in males than in females. And often, like I've seen this, uh, like uh, cliff diving. And obviously there's lots of women who like cliff diving. So if you're a woman and you're out there and you're like, I love jumping and I love cliff diving. I don't know what you guys are talking about. This is just a general principle. Um, and if you're a man and you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm shaky after this and want to puke for yeah, hours, yeah, that's yeah. normal too. These things are probably on a normative distribution, right? Where yeah, you yeah. see some people on the yeah. side of that. Yeah, but what I have noticed is that more often, like I'll be out, say, cliff diving and I, you know, I feel fear or, you know, I don't feel as much fear as I used to now, but uh, I'll feel fear. And I hit the water and I come up and I have this really, really strong sense of elation, right? Mm. And then I've taken particularly some of my female students and uh, my wife and, and seen them go through the fear, overcome it, hit the water and just be like shaky and white for right. long periods of time. Very afterwards. Interesting. 
Yeah. Now I, I have I've, lots of female students who've also had the elation experience. Mm -hmm. um, but I've definitely seen more with women in particular that they've, they've had that experience yeah. of, of that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I just thought that those would be interesting groundings to kind of explore. Great nuances. So let's, let's look at the, the neurohormonal system. Let's talk about mm -hmm. the, the amygdala, as well as this uh, gut heart, which I've, I've seen you yeah. write about, and I think is really interesting. So um, with that, can you go a little bit more into your model of fear and, and how, how people experience it? Yeah, so I suppose one, one thing to add is that this sort of understanding of some of the intricacies of our uh, inner experiences, perhaps through a scientific lens, perhaps through a sort of observational lens. This sort of informed compassion, I think, can be an incredible tool for, for, for teaching, for communicating, for uh, perhaps tailoring an, an individual's process or helping someone with their individual process to do what I think we're all sort of looking to do, which is to push a little bit further into that um, space of uh, uncertainty. So I, th I think there's a huge amount of value in this um, in this kind of understanding, perhaps these sort of um, more statistical based understandings, which we can then tailor down to the individual, of course, having a statistical idea of, of um, you know, the, 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 some, some tendency yeah. within the neurochemical profile of men or women doesn't mean <laughs> that that applies to the individual necessarily, as we yeah. know. It's, it, I, I kind of want to riff on that because I think that you know, potentially some people will be a little bit put off by where this conversation has started because the gender thing does tend to, to step on people's toes. But this this it brings up an argument for me for why it's actually really useful because I think it actually informs empathy, yeah. right? Yeah. Because if I have a student who comes to me and it's a male or a female, um, one of the first things that I know about them is that they're a male and a female. Right. That's that's just information. And if there's if there are general differences, then that that gives me the scaffolding of a model for that individual. Mm -hmm. And now over time, I get to say, OK, well, this part of that scaffolding is not is not is not true in this person. Mm -hmm. And I can let go of it. Yeah. yeah. But if yeah. I if I don't have any scaffolding, then I don't know how to respond. Right. Yeah. So I remember the first time that I took uh, a female friend cliff diving and she was shaky and white afterwards. I had no empathy at all. I was just like, what is wrong on, with you? Yeah. Like, this is so weird. Like, come on, like all the rest of us are, are here whooping it up and excited and having a great time. And, you know, you look like you're ready to puke. And I just didn't get it. Right. I had no, I had no, it wasn't that I was completely unempathic, but I just couldn't map myself into her experience. And so I couldn't, um, I couldn't meet her where she was and then ask the question of like, okay, well, um, let's say that, that, that cliff diving or parkour or one of these things that is fear inducing could actually have some kind of incredible transformative power for this person. My inability to get where she was coming from in that moment is actually a major obstacle to her being able to shift her experience in such a way that she has access to that. And I actually think that's why Ultimately, my wife ended up not continuing in parkour with me when she started because I, I didn't have a model that allowed me to access her internal experience right. in order to understand how I could support yeah. her properly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, the landscape of uh, individual inner experiences is so broad that one couldn't possibly intuit how someone else feels based on how they feel. 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's not, not possible. One of the, um, we'll, we'll speak later about the exploration group, but one of the projects that we uh, was came out of this was uh, from a woman called Amelie Witch, who made a project on uh, aphantasia, so the lack of an inner, visual, inner visualization, so inner, yeah. inner uh, imagery. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just the, the compassion that can stem from understanding is in itself a, a huge I think, reason, motivation to gain more knowledge about the world because we just can't derive any knowledge about other people's, well, not much knowledge about other people's experiences from uh, only being in our own minds and bodies. So, uh, yeah. Uh, in, in to go back to your question, the process of dealing with fear for me is very much naturally individual. Um, exploring these intuitive markers uh, with, a, with a grain of salt. Uh, they, these, these emotional markers, these uh, are always going to operate as sort of smoke detectors. So they're always going to bias on the side of caution. Mm -hmm. um, if I feel intense fear at something, it's likely, depending on my prior exposure, that this is going to be um, biasing me towards a higher level of caution than is perhaps required by the situation. And I think that really makes the game interesting in a sense, because then we're trying to create this uh, alignment between um, how we're uh, perceiving the world and what is sort of most likely to, to happen. But the process for me is a lot about simply exposure, uh, a lot about adequate preparation, a lot, of, a lot about um, um, giving people the, the, the information and the tools to perceive the risk accurately, also to deal with the risk accurately. So um, having, yes, simply having options, uh, having this sort of extra information, this sort of uh, gray zone between I'm either going to successfully do this or be you know, horribly injured. That's not the situation we want. We want to be in this situation where people have um, um, the possibility of climbing the ladder one step at a time but then also the context where if they uh but also the context to potentially you know just jump from the ladder to to to, to, to take these sort of larger leaps in, in one moment and i think there's a, a huge amount of value there in again this sort of jump forward into the into the unknown um you can have again these sort of intense transformative experiences i, I know i've gone through a number of these experiences myself and uh, these yeah, deep, um, very deep, potentially uh, emotional experiences are, uh, I think, a huge uh, gift that a teacher can give to a, to a student or help facilitate. So. Yeah, the experience of a quantum leap. It's, it's funny. I, I don't know if this is true for you, but I have a sense that that gets harder and harder as you, as you, as you get older in your practice, right? It feels like, like it takes more actual risk to yeah. take these steps because my perception becomes more accurate. Or it takes stepping outside of where your 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 practice normally is. Indeed. Yeah. Right. Because when it's mapped well, um, you know your edge, right? And so, I mean, I think the reality is that you can't you uh, you can't operate real far from your physiological edge. So when you experience a quantum leap 
you're actually just discovering that your edge was a lot farther than you thought, right? right? Um, but the more you've practiced, and particularly the more that you've practiced a particular uh, uh, movements, uh, particular set of movements in a particular environment, the better map that's going to be, and the smaller the increments of improvement are. So those experiences of of the of the of the major changes um, are going to come when you go to a new environment. Um, if you're a parkour athlete, for instance, you can you can experience that sensation more by going somewhere you're not familiar with, um, or by even going to a new practice. Right? Like I've had real quantum leap experiences in like um, you know uh, dance. And that's been right. yeah. like quite surprising and really interesting to experience. Great. Yeah, it's interesting to see that some people have this, um, or, or there is a facet of training that involves not just the increase of skill, but also the willingness. Uh, this is what I would describe as boldness. Mm -hmm. If you imagine that the, the classic Star Trek, um, to boldly go where no man has gone before, yeah, yeah. boldness is that willingness to step outside of the of the known mm -hmm. and uh, this boldness is also something that seems quite trainable uh, this willingness to, to kind of maybe go into these what I'm describing as heart spaces where the heart is beating intensely and you're sort of getting some resistance but um, feeling uh, pulled into the moment that willingness to move forward in those situations is also something quite um, quite significant quite trainable and I think when you look at someone like Don Tommaso, who uh, if listeners are not aware of, I would recommend uh, checking him out. Yeah. There's clearly an, an ability there, not just to increase in the technical, but also in the sort of, um, uh, in the emotional, in a sense, to, to move forward into that, into that heart space very far. It's quite, uh, quite phenomenal to see. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I just watched the new video. If, you know, anyone in the audience hasn't seen it, you can go see Dom do a, uh, a Kong um, front flip over a massive gap with a huge drop um, in a very iconic place in London. Um, and uh, I was thinking about that, uh, that capacity to, to let go into those experiences recklessly. And, and I, was, I was wondering if Dom's ever had like a really, um, a really major injury because I feel like it's harder to come back and release that way, mm -hmm. you know, after having torn your Achilles or broken your leg or, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm just curious about that because there is always the potential that, that things can go wrong. And there is a, um, there is a sense of invulnerability that can come when you have, uh, when you have, not had it go wrong lots of times. Dom it doesn't is, uh, mean un uniquely. Sorry, go ahead. Doesn't mean that it still can't go wrong, right? For sure. So, yeah. Dom is a uniquely robust specimen. Yeah. yeah. Someone who's very able to take a hit. Yeah. Where most people would consider that possibility and back away. He seems able to consider the possibility of falling is willing to take those consequences takes those consequences and then yeah. is is seemingly fine so it's yeah uh, i say that but then of course you know now i'm i'm remembering when he fell off the course in uh 
in in China took a right. three story drop to his face and broke yeah. his wrist. Yeah. Um, so th that brings up, uh, you know, I know that you share an interest in like Jordan Peterson's work, and you know, mm -hmm. one of his areas of interest, of course, is personality psychology, mm -hmm. and. I think one of the topics we're talking about re here really uh, is something like neuroticism, right? Which is, yes, you know, it's basically how sensitive are you to negative information, negative emotion, right? Mm. And so, if you uh, if you are more sensitive to negative emotion, you're going to have a bigger negative emotional spike to an injury or an impact. And um, that 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 has a massive impact on on whether you are willing to do the same thing again, right? It's not just the injury itself; it's the emotional, psychological response to the injury that that determines the um, willingness to step boldly into the same space the second time. Right. It's very interesting. You mentioned this. Um, something I've been considering in some detail lately is for practice of parkour actually orientating people towards a more neurotic um, type of behavior because we're often practicing in this sort of concrete environment with very sharp edges things like this very sort of careful of each movement mm -hmm. and there's a voluntariness there's a sort of uh, consciousness yeah that is not animalistic that is not um sort of full-hearted it's not released it's um it's, it's it's actually very kind of inhibited that i'm 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 curious if certainly i can see this in my own uh, practice in, in times where um my cautiousness has bordered on neuroticism mm -hmm. where i've been overly cautious of taking uh, avoiding risks but then also to the point of avoiding situations that might incur risk and you mentioned dance earlier and i think it's quite analogous sort of avoiding the situation where I could perhaps encounter this sort of emotional uh, um, uh, distress it would be an example of avoiding the kind of scenario that, that um, feels risky um, and yeah it's, it's interesting to see someone like Dom I know personally and I know that he's very very low in neuroticism he's very calm all sure. the time and, and kind of rock up to a spot and kind yeah. of go go ham from the, from the first moment uh, so I think there's a, a huge potential for practicing self-trust within parkour. And, and, uh, and I don't know the literature on yeah. um, really personality change. I, I don't know how mm -hmm. real this is. It's something we speak about a lot, but I don't really, I, I, I don't know this um, scientific literature intimately. So I don't know how possible experts see this as to, 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 to take a trait like um being you know, high in neuroticism or something like this and go through some kind of process to uh, explore that trait or become more aware of it or to maybe change the um, uh, sort of neurochemical operating system. I, I don't know if these things are possible, but they're very interesting to, uh, to, to consider. Hmm. So I have a few thoughts about that. Um... So it's interesting that you bring up, I want, I want to go back and first touch on the idea that um, we, uh, we may be in training uh, neuroticism in parkour. Mm. 
Because I think there is some truth to that, but then there's also the opposite pole, which is that we are literally engaging in exposure therapy, mm -hmm. right? So um, one of the things that, that really struck me when I encountered the ideas of cognitive behavioral therapy is that parkour is basically cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's motor behavioral therapy. You are, you're intentionally exposing yourself to stressors and those stressors become, uh, are, start to elicit less, less negative emotion, right? So you have probably thousands of jumps that at one time were a huge spike in epinephrine and cortisol and, you know, um, arousal hormones and potentially negative affect hormones, right? Uh, or neurotransmitters, I should say. Um, that now uh, you can face completely calmly, right? So, so in some sense, parkour is operating as a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's teaching us to go through this process of overcoming fear. And it's, it, and it is mapping the world for us in such a way that less of the world is triggering of fear, right? It's the opposite of agoraphobia, right? Agoraphobia is avoiding something, becoming more afraid of it, letting it bleed into something else, and then becoming more afraid of it. But I think there is something true in the sense that operating always at the edge of your fear does trigger something that's embodied. One thing that I've seen within both parkour athletes and martial artists is a tendency to adopt a hunch forward posture that's mm -hmm. self-protective. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see this sort of kyphotic, almost fetal posture that becomes mm -hmm. really common in both of these sports. Part of that may be biomechanical to the types of positions you're in and how you leverage them. But I think part of it is literally that you're, you're protecting your, you're, you're, you're putting yourself in a position where your organ systems are in danger and you're adopting a, a position that is defensive of those organ systems. Right. Right. And it's really striking to look at that um, in contrast to, to dancers and the openness and the sense of release that mm -hmm. can happen within dance. Yeah. And I often advocate that parkour athletes try to move more like a dancer or try to right. go and study that and that sensation of, of, of letting go. And I think some of the stuff that you've been doing with bring somatics into your work and trying to increase the sense of safety right. through a somatic perception sort of aligns along that. So I'd be curious to have you kind of jump into your thinking around um, the value of operating within fear to yeah to sort of entrain the ability to deal with it versus the value of expanding capacity to feel safe. Yeah, I think that's that's very much the dichotomy. Uh, do I go out to train and train on that edge or do I do I work on expanding my edge? Do I go mm -hmm. on the edge or do I expand the edge? So that might that expansion might happen not at the edge, but sort of more more towards the the uh, my sort of 70 percent um, effort let's say rather than 100 percent effort and uh this question i think is explored interestingly through the lens of ease so in increasing ease, ease. and, and yeah. moving with more ease um essentially if we can learn to make something that was difficult easy 
uh, we can also make things that were, you know, th th that are potentially more difficult in the future um, uh, within that round, uh, realm of, of uh, possibility or, or comfort. So I think we can kind of expand that known territory by um, yeah, making hard things easy. And the process for this, I, I've been finding very interesting. The uh, one of the topics we've been exploring has been this um, relationship between intensity and sensitivity in the sense that when we are experiencing greater intensities, we are less able to be sensitive within our bodies. And as you sort of mentioned, there's this sort of uh, interoceptive, extraceptive in the, in the sort of space between. Uh, we know that the cortexes relating to sensation and relating to movement or, or, or the, 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 the somatosensory cortexes um, act very much um, are, are coupled in some significant way. So essentially to move with a greater refinement, we have to sense with a greater refinement. And so the idea here is that when we're experiencing these greater intensities, we don't have this capacity to sense uh, smaller things. And a lot of the time in parkour, people just train only at the greater intensities. And so they actually neglect this opportunity to uh, build their uh, sort of technical capacity. Yeah. Um, so a, a huge opportunity cost for this. And, and it, you know, there's, there's maybe what, what are the reasons for this? What are the incentives for this? There's a sort of performative element a lot of the time um, coming through. But um, yeah, so I, I think dance is often entirely orientated towards this more, um, we could say, somatic approach, uh, this sort of like Feldenkrais inspired approach, which is really relating to. Well, some uh, some feeling. some forms of dance, let's say, because there's sure, many yeah, worlds I, within dance. There's many worlds within dance, right? Yeah, this is not my not my territory. Mm -hmm. um, and many worlds within parkour, indeed. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it seems that the focus is often relating to at least the impression of ease or this notion of grace of sort of moving with with, uh, with ease. And, uh, this has bled through into some parts of parkour, but I think that the mentality is often do things that are on the limit rather than expand the limit. And it personally took me a very long time to encounter these sorts of ideas, uh, moving towards strength and flexibility training, um, this sort of th these sorts of things that will um, expand the territory that we can operate from to essentially, as I said, make hard things easy. Yeah, I was listening. Uh, I was reading your post about building versus exploring, mm. and I think there's something really interesting there. But there's something in, in the way that you've said that, and and in and also in that post that didn't quite map for me to my model. And I'm interested to to play with it because Great. they're both expanding your edges, right? It's just a matter of how you're expanding your edges. Yeah. Right. So there's a so. Um, and I think Feldenkrais, uh, this is something that a friend of mine who's a Feldenkrais practitioner, Todd Hargrove, uh, talked to me about. When you say have an injury, right, you can explore every way that your body can move without experiencing pain, right? And this can, this can uh, essentially um, 
bring the nervous system's level of threat down, which is a lot of what we're talking about right now. And so that expands the edges of what you're capable of without actually touching the edge in some sense. Um, and then there are times in therapy when you have to go into pain, you have to feel pain, right? So there's, or we, or we might say that we can, we can, um, we can expand the edges of work capable of in ways that in some sense are about like sort of building our foundation stronger. And then there are some that are like stretching ourselves out to the edges. And one thing that is interesting to me about that is, uh, uh, for some reason I'm struck by this conversation around style right now, right? Or who has, who has a really beautiful technical ability. And that a lot of times the, the beauty of someone's movement seems to be more associated with, with the exploration of what is sort of within their capability. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with Louis West? Yes. Yeah. Louis West talked about lateral versus vertical creativity. Lateral creativity is essentially, so you, let's say you're at a, you know, let's say you can jump 14 feet, right? So do you just go try to jump 14 feet and six inches? Or do you try to find every jump that's uh, that you can in every way that's between 12 and 13 and a half feet or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that you get kind of different results from those two things. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the later seems to be the thing that builds more of an aesthetic in movement. And yeah. often athletes seem to adopt that, that perspective after injury, right? It's like you go vertical until you get smashed, right? right? Or you get smashed hard enough that your personal level of neuroticism shifts you to a different direction. Yeah, I've uh, experienced all of these things for sure. Yeah. So I'm thinking about this because like, you know, I think, I think it's pretty much indisputable that right now that say Dom, I will use Dom as our archetype right here, is the best at doing big stuff in the parkour world right now. And kind of by a wide margin, like he is maybe, you know, another, he's on, he's literally on another level right now that anybody else is willing to think about. Um, but no offense to Dom, but I don't find him to be an especially stylish mover, right? Sure. Like, um, and some of his technical aspects are not particularly beautiful, right? Like, I always cringe when I watch him do a climb up. Sure. And I think that his 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 capacity to not be emotionally bothered by pushing his edges mm-hmm. makes this kind of vertical direction of pushing the game more possible for him than for other people. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm reminded of another friend of mine, Rodrigo Pomp, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he has yeah. one of the nicest styles. Go watch Rodrigo. And he does very exceptional stuff. But he told me once that he he basically never trains when he's afraid and never has. He's yeah. still attained an extraordinary level, right? But he's always kept himself within the sense of safety within his training. Right. And the the quality of his movement, the, the technicality of his movement is yeah. really astonishing. Um, I actually think I'm I'm probably more towards Dom in some sense, right? Like I'm, I, I have done the, I have done both, right? Mm -hmm. 
but I'm attracted to doing big things a lot. And sure. yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. It's just an interesting split. I, I, I know that on the big five personality characteristics, I'm like in the one percent, you know, the first percentile for, for neuroticism. Right. Um, right. So I'm curious, where, where do you see yourself within that? Probably quite high actually. Probably neuroticism. quite like on the, yeah, yeah. Maybe not 99th, but um, that would make this interview quite difficult, but <laughs> I, I would imagine higher than average. Yeah. And now, yeah. and I would say that that, aligns because like after I watched a bunch of your clips, right? And um, you have a very consistent style, right? Your movement looks very consistent for me. And it's very much the the um, the current aesthetic of parkour that may be the optimal aesthetic or it may be just what's what's going through, but like feet together on landing, right. you know, a certain shift, it looks exactly like all the guys who have great sticks, right? Right. You do a lot of very technical stuff. And, and some of it's really big, right? Your lashes are huge, right? Um, but, and this may be just what you choose to put out, but I don't see a lot of stuff on roofs. I don't see a lot of, mm -hmm. of, of height work. And also you're not often moving at great speed. Mm, yeah. I would say those things are not unrelated. I, I used to do quite a lot of, I would say height exposure, finding, this more mental space to train and, and really when I say mental I mean not physical in the sense that the process would be very much sort of standing calculating figuring something out almost completely still for you know, 10 20 minutes half an hour at a time very intense and I trained like this for a number of years and uh found that again whilst this boldness whilst this willingness increased my physical capacity was was not increasing uh, and then shifted more towards this um more sort of technical style that you'll, you'll maybe see the last time I, I revisited some more um kind of hearty stuff in the in the last uh, few months but it's, several years ago now I had rather a bad injury which made me question my motivation for the way that I have been approaching certain things in the past and trying to take this notion of efficiency within the process of breaking down the jump to its furthest point which is to deal with the variables in an entirely cognitive way. Mm -hmm. So to understand and to break down these uh, possibilities um, and then to sort of move forward. So it's essentially what, what this would look like was part of the challenge would be to complete the jump without testing it or with minimal testing. Yeah. And this got taken to its limits I suffered a bad injury, and this led me into into questioning a lot of uh, my motivation for, for for things very broadly. Um, but I sort of stepped away from certain elements of, of uh, at least training at training at height for the last uh, couple of years. Yeah, you're probably familiar with Dylan Baker, right? Mm. Yeah. So Dylan is probably 
the the OG of of overcoming fear in the in mm. the parkour community here, and I've had some interesting conversations with him about it. And one his his rule was like it's either hell yes or it's no, right? Right. And he was really looking for a felt sense of hell yes very mm. quickly in a process. Yeah. And so he would say that like people thought that he was fearless, but it was much more that he just had said no to the jumps that he didn't feel confident to do before people noticed. Mm -hmm. And the ones that he was ready for, he was just ready for. Mm -hmm. And so he, he, um, he thought he felt that if you spent too much time sort of cogitating about a yeah. jump, you would actually sort of build the fear up. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there was this sort of optimal level of mental prep. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, Dom comes to mind again here in this, right? If you watch that clip of him prepping for this insane thing, you'll see that, um, you know, he goes through uh, building the skill up in various other ways and prepping and attuning his body. Mm -hmm. But once he decides to do it, he rehearses the skill really not very many times. Mm -hmm. And you can see also that he, he stays very, very calm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what I remember about Dylan as well. It's the same thing. Um, yeah. But part of that, part of that is obviously, you know, in, intrinsic characteristics of the personality, but part of it is mental approach, right? Because I, I've adopted things from Dylan where I, I, I just, you know, if I'm going to have to sort of fight through a lot of tension to do a jump, I just don't do it. Right. Um, but I look for the yes, that a lot that works for me in doing very high level challenges. Mm -hmm. I think this also goes back to the earlier conversation around emotion and yeah. trusting the wisdom of the body yeah. over the over our uh, cognition, which is something that's culturally not, uh, n not a way that we're really exposed to, not, not a way of being that we're really exposed to, which is this sort of, um, um, perhaps rec recognition of the value of, of intuition, things like this. So there are not so many situations where it, it is perhaps valuable in um, kind of regular cultural operating system. But the um, experience that I had when I fell and I went through this very cognitive process to kind of assess this jump and I, and I misassessed it. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of regulated my emotional state when I should have not regulated my emotional state, I should have uh, kept that uh, kept that fear. Actually, I should have listened to it. Uh, this really spurned on this journey of exploring the work around intuition, Antonio Damasio's work on the somatic marker hypothesis, things like this, trying to gain a sense of like what is just at the bare possible bones, ground truth. What is an emotion? What is you know what 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 is this thing that everyone's sort of referencing um, was actually quite unfamiliar to me. And then from this more cognitive exploration of emotion built up a sense of, okay, he, here's actually what this is, here is what these uh, signals are responding to. Um, and I think from this, we can, we can understand that our intuition is built up by our experiences, essentially by the sort of, um, um, 
outcomes of our experiences. And, and, and to go back to Dom, part of his willingness likely comes from the experience of falling and it not being so bad. Yeah, that's something that might inform uh, an intuition to be perhaps more willing to uh, take risks than um, what one might might expect. So um, yeah, certainly now I'm exploring a much more emotively driven, intuitive approach rather than this uh, heavily cognitive approach that, that I think is um, sort of what I was referring to as well, driving possibly a more kind of neurotic approach to, to the practice that is perhaps taking us away from the from the felt sense, from the embodied sense, from this more sort of somatic area that I think is ultimately what we're looking for in a, in a practice built around the idea of freedom. We're often building these traps for ourselves that we're not necessarily able to uh, get out of. So. Yeah. I, um, that felt sense of yes, that's such an interesting mm. thing to explore because you'll hear parkour athletes say like, okay, well, I can jump that far. Right. Like I've done, I've done X number of jumps that are 10 feet wide and standing prees or whatever. And there's some truth to that. And I think, especially as a younger practitioner, your, your map, uh, your, your emotions maybe are less well mapped onto um, what your capabilities are. And sometimes you have to break through. Right. And yet, the reality is that, 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 that you're actually different all the time and the context is different, right? You may tell yourself, okay, well, I've done this jump, but there's something about the jump that you may not be cognitively tuned into that's actually different that you don't realize, right? And I feel like a lot of times people get hurt when they're sort of like, oh, I've done a jump that's like this. Yeah. Um, I, uh, a couple of years ago, I was in, um, I was in London, uh, and who was with me? Uh, no, it doesn't matter. There's some fun, uh, some fun London folks there. Mm -hmm. And one of us found um, this very large jump between two tree branches. It's a beautiful big oak tree. And mm -hmm. it was like a six foot drop. And it was actually a 12 foot standing pre, which was, I mean, it was, this was one of these quantum leaps in performance. I'd never done more than like a 10 foot standing pre, right? 10 maybe. 10 and a half feet for standing pre. Um, and, you know, you're still dropping six, seven feet if you come off this, but the ground's soft, but it, it wasn't too bad. So um, it was intimidating though, right? If you're, mm -hmm. if you shinned it, you know, mm -hmm. and got flipped over, it was going to be sure. a, a bad day. Um, and so I did that jump and it was great, right? It was like huge. And it felt so good to, to be able to do it because it was such a big, such a, such a jump in performance at such a late age in my career, really, you know? And then I came back to the U S and there was a, a very similar sized jump that I was looking at. Um, and I knew that I could make the gap, but I was very, I was very sort of afraid to do it, but I was like, okay, I'm just, I, I've, I've had this string of really high performance and now I'm going to need to, <laughs> um to kind of calm my body down as we go into winter but i just want to hit this last one before before i'm done very cognitive process for the jump very yeah, top yeah. down okay. and um 
and I, I, I did the jump and I made it, but the, the branch, so the branch in London was basically, the two branches are basically parallel to each other, but the branch, uh, the branches in, in Seattle were, were off, off of each other slightly. And the, the, the landing area that I was aiming at, like was, was slanted like this and then turned into a, a tree trunk going straight up. So uh, if you're, if you're listening to this on a podcast, it was slanted and turned into a tree trunk. And, um, and then behind that landing area, the tree, the, the branch slanted down a lot. Okay. And, um, and so I jumped and I over jumped slightly and I landed on the ball of my foot. And because it was slanted, my foot just completely slid out. And so all my weight came down on my heels. So I did basically a, a six foot drop, 12 foot pre to a straight heel landing. Right. Um, yeah. And I literally had some level of pain in my heels for 18 months after that. Oh man. I was able to get back to pretty normal practice within, um, within like a month or two. But, uh, mm-hmm. but like if I was going to do a front flip and I was going to land short, like I was going to, sure. it was going to hurt. So yeah. um, looking back at that situation, do you feel that if you had approached it from a more sort of bottom up emotive, uh, what, what is my strong yes or strong no saying? Yeah. Would the outcome have been different? I don't know. But, but here's what I realized that I wasn't accounting for and that yeah. an intuitive signal might have sent to me, which is that um, the landing was much more com- uh, technically complex here. Mm. And we were much further out on a branch that had the capacity to bend a little bit. So the impact on the, the jump in London was much less because it was taken away. Whereas this cedar branch was very short and very thick. And so it was essentially like jumping down to concrete. And that's the type of thing where I think that if you are too focused on some of the objective metrics of it, there's these, there's these things that your, 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 your intuitive system is capable of recognizing that sometimes your cognitive system doesn't, doesn't get. Right. And 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 again, again, I think these are fascinating lessons to integrate into teaching or leading people to these these experiences because we per, perhaps if someone has never done a practice like parkour before and they don't have this sort of um, sort of intuition pumps in place, then as a teacher it's perhaps your responsibility to say no, heavens no, yeah. don't don't do this. But if someone has been practicing for a while, our intuition externally is less good than we think it is uh, towards other people's possibilities mm-hmm. and there's a huge power to giving people the space to say yes or to say no uh, giving people that that autonomy um, and that sort of self-reference so i think teaching is um in my understanding with parkour is so much about actually having the confidence in yourself to step back or the confidence in in, in their own uh, in, in in the sort of the wisdom of the student's body to step back i mean i've mean, seen so many amazing things happen where there's this sort of battle between the top down and, and the bottom up between uh, someone swinging on a bar, having this um, intention to, to let go from the bar, someone who's very new to the practice. And I could see from where I was that they were swinging with their body totally open, which means that when they let go, they're going to just to fly out and land on their yeah. back. And the intention was 
purely to release from the bar, but their body would not let them do that. So there's this mm -hmm. fascinating, as I said, sort of smoke detector, self-protection mechanism in, in place. And uh, I think we can give people space to, to explore that. And ultimately it's that autonomy, uh, that agency is what people want to cultivate and uh, what I see more and more is that is the value of curiosity and I think there's a there's a value in giving people the curiosity and giving people the curiosity giving people the space to develop the curiosity about actually what what can I do rather yeah. than just as a coming as an external coach and saying you can do this you can do this yeah absolutely it's not so motivating. When, when I'm at our uh at our big summer retreat, there's a jump that we do that's um, it's about 11 feet with a four foot drop um, but over a canyon. And we give people the opportunity to take a look at this, right? And I've had quite a few students who I wasn't sure that they were ready to do the jump, yeah. right? And I was, felt a lot of fear as they prepared for the jump. But what I found over the years is that um, that that what I needed to tune into is whether they're really in a deep state of yes or whether they're in anxiety as they prepare for the jump. And that if I see the yes in them, it always comes out safely. But if I see the anxiety in them, that's what I need to talk with them through and help them learn to recognize whether there's going to be a yes or whether there's not. And that, that my perception of their capabilities is 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 less important, right? Than my perception of their internal emotional state and how that relates to their readiness for something, if yeah. that makes sense. What's driving their behavior or what's driving yeah. their uh, desire to, to move forward, whether that's um, performance or whether that's uh, yeah, this sort of curiosity. So I wanted to dig into that because I feel like there's a, you have an interesting model about the, the felt sensations of of fear and the felt sensations of, um, of maybe the felt sensations of, of the yes through fear that um, we've hinted at, but I don't think you've really laid out. So mm -hmm. what is the difference between, how, how do you look at heart versus gut in, re, uh, in relationship to fear? My hypothesis, which I've given, actually had some, some experiment uh, for, which has been confirmed so far. So, I ran a workshop in Germany where I gave the, this premise of the, the sensation of the heart as this sort of um, uh, feeling of fear plus possibility, let's say, mm -hmm. and this sense, sense of, the, of the gut contracting is sort of fear plus, um, or we say fear minus possibility, fear plus apprehension. Mm -hmm. And I gave them this, this idea and I, and I said, okay, go into this, um, this uh, parkour setup that had been arranged by the uh, by the uh, community there, and find something that elicits one of these sensations. If you can find something particularly that elicits this, this sense from the gut, uh, go to do this and come back, and we'll we'll have a conversation. And okay, so the next task was to explore, say, conquering the the, the, the challenge, getting past the uh, past the jump and gave some time people went to do this and broke the jumps down 
came back and resoundingly the experience was that when people were faced with this intense sensation from the gut they were not able to move forward but when they spent time testing the jump practicing similar movements or just getting a feel for it that intense um, uh, gastric contraction uh, dissipated they felt the stronger sense from the heart and they were able to able to um, complete the, the jump so that that was very consistently what was observed um, the hypothesis comes from a study of the polyvagal theory Stephen Porges's work uh, which I'm, I'm not uh, I struggle with now because it's uh, Paul Gossman, Grossman, I can't quite remember. There, there, are, there are critiques of this, uh, this, this perspective, so I'm not sure how um, factually true it is, but I think it provides a very interesting model. But anyway, that they, uh, the, the, the model contains this idea that when we're in a, a state of, um, we, we, can, we can be in a state of fear where we are still regulated where we're still, uh, we could say grounded or, or safe would be the, the metaphor. And then in this state, uh, my understanding is that the primary um, um, sort of afferent signal from the viscera, so the primary signal that is arriving into the central nervous system from the uh, visceral organs comes from the heart. And when we move beyond this threshold of, of fear, when we feel unsafe, when we're sort of afraid, unsafe, the primary afferent is from the uh, from the intestinal region. So th that was the idea that I took yeah. from exploring polyvagal. Uh, and then I experienced that a little bit, tested it out. I, I had one uh, period where I, I, I was swinging from one bar to another, missed my hands, I landed flat on my stomach and I had a um, very intense uh, visceral, uh, specifically gastric experience for uh, 10 days after this to the point yeah. where uh, a car that went past me at any speed with this sort of creeping feeling up in my gut, up in my gooch, sort of down my leg, um, very intense for, uh, for 10 days or so. And, and this went away. And that was also a huge sort of empathy and inducing moment because a lot of people live their whole lives experiencing this uh, heightened um, visceral sense. So um, th th there are sort of three spaces uh, three perhaps quite broad spaces which we could map out here. One is this uh, gastric sense, and, and just to give the listeners a, a clear impression of what that what that would be like is perhaps standing on the top of a tall tower and reaching over, getting this sense of um, what kind of comes up through the through the body, through the feet, through the through the intestines. Uh, the, 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 seems to have a sort of negative valence to it it seems to sort of say come away from whatever you're doing that is, is making you feel like this on the other side we have the heart signal which is perhaps um yeah whether this is some apprehension job interview whatever it is um gets its increased heart rate uh, and then on, on on the third we have this idea of just um actually this this, this sort of neutral space where there's no very clear, there's no intense signal from the body. And th this is also a, a, an interesting space to explore. Um, I don't really understand the significance of this, but it, it seems to me that there's this space where we're actually not feeling 
any intense uh, intuitive signals from the body and, and it's more sort of clear. And within that is also a huge amount of possibility. When I spoke to um, um, Daniel, uh, speak about this, but uh, I posed this, this question to him, uh, what was his relationship with these internal signals? And he spoke of one of the most intense moments that he's had within Falkor was a moment of pure clarity. There was actually no, as his recollection, there was no um, intense beating heart or no contracting gut or anything like this. It was just a, a, a neutrality. Mm-hmm. So there are nuances to this that are very interesting, but it, but it seems that it, 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 at the least I would use these signals as an internal feedback system so that when we're perhaps exploring a, a challenge or a route or a task or really perhaps anything in everyday life, I think that the, the thing about training is that it's repeatable. So training is training because the action that you're doing is repeatable. So when we're going through a task or going through a, a movement within parkour, let's say, I can use this um, internal criteria as a feedback loop to measure progress. Yeah. So typically we're just looking at the external. Uh, cool, yeah, I did that a little bit faster. But this is one way of asking, how did that feel? Mm-hmm. And filtering our answer for a meaningful result. And we can kind of explore that in the context of, of uh, feeling more safe within what we're doing. So yeah. perhaps we want to work towards this uh, neutral space. Perhaps that's the goal. I can't really say at this point, but it's uh, certainly very interesting to uh, explore through this lens. Yeah. So a few, few thoughts there are really interesting to me. So on the gut versus the heart, I'm curious whether that is, um, whether that becomes a prescriptive rather than actual descriptive or whether it's a pattern that maybe is specific to you that then can be, that a student could map to themselves and utilize and it can be useful to them, but isn't actually um, say say central to the experience. Um, are you familiar with Simon Thacker? No. I highly recommend his work to you. I think that you would get a lot out of it. He's uh, His work's very aligned with mine, but he's really very interested in the neurobiological side. Mm-hmm. And um, has also studied meditation deeply and yogic tradition and uh, and internal martial arts traditions really deeply. Um, but he did a, a meditation with us at a retreat on the chakras, and he um, he made a point that was really fascinating to me, which was that the chakras are not. He he believed it in the yoga sutras. The chakras are not described actually as as objective realities, but rather they're their prescriptions, their, their prescriptions um, for how we should, they're, they're a method for how we can specifically embody in ourselves. It's like you, you don't start with, with the heart chakra meaning this thing necessarily. You build the meaning into the heart chakra because it provides a place for you to get this embodied signal. And so there's, a, there's actually an entraining of that signal to that area. And so I think that we could, that the, des- the description of what you experience with your students could be interpreted as, as them discovering a pattern, but it could also be them utilizing a pattern that's given to them 
and being able to then then resolve a pattern better through that. And I think, yeah. yeah, I think that's a useful way to look at it. Um, as I think of, as I think about the gut versus the heart versus the sense of, of, of calmness, one of the first things I think about is the sense of butterflies, which is a gut feeling. But I find that is generally a feeling that is associated with promise rather than threat, right? It's, it's that intersection of the two, right? When you approach a girl who you're interested in, or a boy if you're a girl, or well, whatever you're interested in, whatever your, <laughs> whatever, whatever your alignment is there, um, you, you'll have that, that, that butterfly, and that can be a really good thing. And I've listened to a lot of fighters talk about their experience of preparing for a fight. And that sense of butterflies before a fight is something that, that, um, that you'll hear a lot of them talk about needing that if they don't have it, they won't perform well. Yeah. So, so that, that, that was one thought that came up for me. And then the other was, um, I've been listening to Andrew Huberman a lot, who I think you get a lot of, out as well. Um, and he was talking about, you can, you can think about emotions on like some very basic level as essentially indexing um, calm to alert and positive to negative, right? Mm-hmm. And so fear is, um, is, is a high alert, highly negative, right? Mm-hmm. And then excitement is sort of moving that, that alertness state over. And so we know that that um, the, the experience that you're going to have when you're doing a big jump in parkour or a fight or something like that is going to be associated with your body producing a lot of cortisol and a lot of epinephrine and you know presumably other neurotransmitter systems that I don't understand that well, right? But testosterone, dopamine, these other things are going to be uh, are going to be happening, and they're all going to affect the 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 felt internal state. One of the things that Huberman talks about is that the dopamine system in particular seems to be very sensitive to subjective framing, right? So we can, um, we can tell ourselves that we're enjoying something and have dopamine essentially move in the direction that we want. Um, if there's any potential that we can shift it, right? Like if you can, if you can focus on the, if you can smile while you're working out, it could actually potentially change the dopamine system and move you from a state of more anxiety to a state of more excitement. Um, so this is more sort of narrative based. Yes. Rather than. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's just an interesting frame to think about is like your, yeah. your alertness in that threat detection is going to be to, to be doing this. The other interesting thing that he talked about is the separation of, so you have the same chemical, adrenaline and, and epinephrine are, are the same, but epinephrine is produced in the brain and adrenaline is produced in the adrenals and they don't cross the blood brain barrier particularly. So it's possible to be in a highly adrenalized state physically and very calm mentally. Mm-hmm. And this is a really powerful tool that we can, yeah. we can utilize. Yeah. So, so when I think about my own ex- embodied experience of fear, there's a sense of, 
you know, as I'm thinking about it now, one of the things I'm feeling is that I actually get a lot of sensation out of the palms of my hands and the tips of my fingers. The sense of sort of electricness at the palm and the ends of my hands, right? And this feels different to me than say, if I was really fear based where it would feel clammy. Does that make sense? Um, so I'm, what I'm, what I'm thinking about is the idea that I think you're really onto something, which is that having a, a, a map of the intuitive signal and learning to recognize the intuitive signal that is associated with, with what you're looking for, or that allows you to accomplish something and stay safe is, um, is really powerful, but there might be some variation in how that physical signaling actually arises for a given individual. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, so I'd love to hear your response to that, but then I, I, while we're on the topic, so just so I can kind of get this series of thoughts out um, in reference to the, the sense of, of neutrality, I want to draw a distinction, let's say between equanimity mm -hmm. and apathy. One of the things that I've noticed in my practice is that when I am overtrained or overstressed, I can become apathetic to fear. And I have a sense that that's a very dangerous place to operate within. Mm -hmm. That there is a sense that um, I think that fear sharpens me, right? Mm -hmm. I want to feel an appropriate level of fear when I'm doing something that is, that is higher risk or higher consequences. Um, the, it's like, that's, that's an index that I'm alert enough to take on the task. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when I, when I feel apathetic, that says to me that I'm, um, that I'm, that I'm actually not getting the, 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 the hormonal systems to kick on that actually make my body alert enough to be tuned in and to do something well. There's also this experience I've had that's very interesting where I've become apathetic, but stayed very, very competent in my movement. In fact, it's one of the highest competency periods that I've had, but I basically had a nervous breakdown immediately afterwards. It was like the apathy was a signal that like, the, the the system that I was operating in was exhausted and that if I continued to operate within it, I would break. And I did. Were there things present in your life that were perhaps contributing to that apathy? And I asked that because when I've experienced similar things, it's also perhaps a sort of disassociation from certain emotional realities that can prompt the shutting down of intuitive signals because if you yeah. if, if you open up to one you're opening up to all of these other uh, possible feelings that we might be uh, pushing aside i don't remember super well mm. but if i remember correctly it was a period of actual a lot of professional success man my relationships were were okay there maybe have been some underlying stressors on my relationship and my marriage, but that was quite distant for me because I was on the road and not, you know, like I may have had a, a little bell ringing in the back of my mind that, that, that my relationship with my wife was suffering because of the time that I was on the road. 
But um, my seminars were all sold out when I was in Europe and it was very, you know, it was an extremely successful trip. And it was literally just the volume of work that I had done was unsustainable, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I had some underlying health problems that were, that were creeping up and not addressed. It's an interesting line where the, the the possibility that some denial of the self can actually be correlated with an improvement in performance, and there's a, a sort of idealism that peak performance is associated with um, um, some sort of whole whole emotional state, but that's not not, not always the case. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's just an interesting perspective. Um, one perspective there as well with um, the, the, uh, so was there any, anything else you wanted to say on that I was going to switch topics yeah so I wanted to I wanted to just propose this idea that that, that sense of clarity mm. um, might be better mapped to something like equanimity and equanimity mm. would be um, the attribute of essentially having the mind be very calm in relationship to the passions. And this is different from not experiencing the passions, I think, right? Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that you're, um, that, that you're, that you come to a place of better calm, right? And that allows you to operate with, with clarity. But you're, when, when the emotional signaling is not there, you don't actually operate with clarity. Right, you're you're blind to incredibly powerful information, right? So it's more about the mind, in some sense, being uh, more centered. Perhaps is a good way to think about it. And I think about the Stoics in in relationship to to the cultivation of this. And one thing that I've actually found, which has been quite interesting in my practice, is that. Um, I, I do meta meditation, loving kindness meditation. And I found that that actually is the best place to, to create the mental state that I want to map in to um, doing high level, high risk parkour. Yeah. Because I have this sense that if I'm coming up from a place of deep love for myself, one, I'll experience more joy in doing things, but also I won't do things that are going to potentially hurt me because that wouldn't be loving to myself. Right. Right. And that if I'm not intentionally sort of accessing these places from that emotion, that there's this potential for, for, for the pursuit of high performance to actually be driven from a self-destructive place. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen that actually quite a bit in the parkour community. I think that it's not talked about nearly enough that, that, um, that there are people who are flirting with death because they are actually deeply, deeply suffering in their day-to-day -day existence. And they are, um, and they're getting massive praise for what they're accomplishing physically while they're, I think, potentially in training emotional states that are extraordinarily destructive for them. So <laughs> balls in your yeah, court. I, yeah, I, uh, no, it's wonderful that you mentioned this, the state of what we could say moving from love is, yeah. um, it, it's sort of very easy to dismiss within this, um, um, 
we could call this sort of rationalist or uh, sort of new atheist kind of paradigm. Um, but I, but I, it, it, my experience certainly with this is that when I, uh, not not through not through loving kindness meditation, but just through loving kindness, feel this intense connection to uh, feeling love, feeling love for myself. Th these are the moments where I'm. I'm at ease, I'm, I'm trusting myself, I'm willing to push to the edge of my ability, not in a self-destructive way, not even in an effortful way, um, but, but able to sort of push myself with, with ease. And, um, and I was thinking, re reflecting on this just the other day, that it would be wonderful to find a way to sort of trigger this, this state. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a, a, a practice of metta is an interesting way to do this. And this also brings us on to perhaps the Christianity, my understanding of, uh, of some of, of, of this philosophy is largely based around this notion of love and yes. uh, love and acceptance. And so I think it's, it's not a coincidence that um, uh, yeah. Daniel, who we've referenced a number of times, maybe I should say explicitly, is um, just, one of just the... <clears throat> Yeah, oh, sorry, I think you were going to do it, but I, I was just going to clarify. <clears throat> For those of you who are not familiar, we're speaking of Daniel Ilabaka. Um, if you're more new to the movement community, you may not actually be familiar with Daniel, but I think it would be fair to say that Daniel set the standard for skill in parkour in the middle aughts. And yeah, there there's elements of the way that Danny moved that I'm not sure anyone has yet uh, leveled up to. And that that's the stuff that I've seen on film. And I've heard stories in the background of the things that Danny accomplished that sound like superhero missions. So he's a, he's quite an interesting person from the sense of what he's accomplished physically. Um, but he, it's also very interesting to me that he somehow found the, something in Christianity that I guess was related to parkour and what he was seeking in parkour mm -hmm. because um, I think that at the time, parkour was really dominated by the new atheist perspective. Um, and I, I was certainly <clears throat> in that camp at the time. So it's a very different thing. But I think there's something almost incidentally uh, spiritual about parkour. And so Danny was like a leading indicator also of, <clears throat> you know, where a lot of us would go in seeking to understand the meaning of life through our practice, I guess. So, so that's that's my my uh, my attempt to introduce Danny to the to the audience. So go ahead. Sure. Hopefully that was useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the the context that we brought that up in the, Daniel's relationship to Christian philosophy, and and again, I want to make it clear that I can only speak about this. I can't give an embodied sense of this because it, my my, uh, my own belief system is is not embodied in the Christian sense. Um, I am not embodied in the Christian sense, so I, I can perhaps only glimpse at what some of these individuals feel regularly. And, and I think it's sort of what was referenced with this notion of uh, loving kindness and acceptance. My understanding of this is, and, and I would love to hear your perspective on this as I know that will, that the, the root of strength of Christianity is this being who made the ultimate sacrifice who loves you and accepts you. And I think if you can even have a notion of what that is like to, um, 
to feel loved unconditionally, to feel loved wholly. Um, that's really something. Um, and, 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 and it seems like not a coincidence, A, that Christianity has sort of evolved to be the dominant um, uh, religious philosophy, and, and also that Daniel has evolved to be the, uh, the mover that he is, having this, um, this, um, this uh, perhaps sort of landscape, uh, being enmeshed in this landscape of, um, of acceptance, of, of love, uh, as, as a sort of launch pad to move into other things from. Um, this sense of being being held, being um, having a sort of a, a, a bedrock. Like they really describe. Um, I, I have another uh, Christian friend who practices in a similar way to, to Daniel, and he says, you know, Jesus first, then my wife, then my child. Or I'm not sure about the order of those two, but it's it's Jesus first, and that's very unintuitive for um, sort of like you know secular mind. It's very interesting to me. Um, so I've been yeah, trying to understand this um, over the last period of time. Um, um, yeah, I think like you mentioned, uh, Daniel's philosophy is, is sort of opened up a lot. Um, we had a conversation recently and, and I felt very uh, accepted by him. I didn't feel like sort of <laughs> persecuted yeah. for my atheism in any way. Um, so I, I think he's, he's really matured in, the, in this sense. And, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just fa fascinating to see that there's this um, relationship between the, 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 perhaps it is going back to what we mentioned earlier, this willingness to move forward into those unknown spaces with the knowledge of, of being held, being accepted, there is a greater possibility to step outside of what one has done before because one will be safe. So there's a sort of safety in this. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm interested to hear what your perspective on, on this is. Yeah. Have you, um, have you studied John Verveke's work at all? Not, not extensively, no. Yeah. yeah. I highly recommend that. And uh, I've, I've had, five conversations with him and it's funny because um <clears throat> my last conversation with was paul vanderclay who's a christian pastor so i was thinking and yeah. here here we're going back to the, the 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 safe ground of movement but now here we are talking about christianity again um uh through through uh, jordan peterson i really developed a um an incredible respect for the christian idea of logos right as a as an orienting principle, right? My um, understanding of that is something like pulling order from chaos. Yeah, that's how he would describe it. Um, logos is, you know, obviously the root of logic, um, and it's the word, right? Like, um, and the idea is that in through the pursuit of truth, we can say bring good into being, right? Mm. And that truth is the the truth of logos. Let's say uh, contains something more than simply the objective truth that is described in in Christian uh, in in science. Right? It's a it's a it's a um, it's a principle that maybe orients us even more deeply than that. Um, and then through John Berveke, I came to really understand the 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 meaning of agape, 
and the power of that and why that's so powerful. So, yeah. so agape, there, I think there's something like seven terms for love actually in, uh, in, in Greek, uh, at least koine, which is the Greek that was spoken at the time of, of, of Jesus in, uh, in the, in the Near East. And, um, but there are three primary ones and the three primary ones are eros, philia, and agape. And eros is the love that seeks to become one with or seeks to consume. So sexual love is erotic, um, but actually so is wanting to eat a chocolate cake, right? Philia is the love that seeks reciprocation, right? It's the love of brotherhood. It's the love of, um, you know, I scratch my back, you scratch yours. You, you, you expect that what is given will be returned in kind. But agape is the love that is given, that is forgiven, that is given without expectation of return, that is given because by giving it, you allow the world, you allow something to come into being. So the analogy is the love that a, uh, a parent has for a child, right? Love, um, lo you don't love the child because you want to become one with it. Hopefully not. You don't love the child because you expect to get an equal return from your investment in the child. You love the child because by loving the child, you allow it to come into being. You participate in the magic and the majesty of being by giving that child love. Mm. And what Christ asks of us is to essentially love everyone that way, to, to place that as the most important and highest principle in our life. And so I think if, if a Christian, for instance, says that they, that they put Christ above their wife, what they're saying in some sense is that they place that principle as the most important principle. And I think that's that when you frame it that way, it becomes more powerful and more, more understandable from outside, from an outsider's perspective. Um, so when Christ says, love thy neighbor, he uses the term agape or love thy enemy, even thy enemy, mm -hmm. right? He uses that term. And symbolically, you can think of Christ as representing someone who can see that we are all flawed, sinful human beings, right? And I think that, um, you know, we don't like this term anymore, but I think that it's actually really powerful. Like mm -hmm. to sin is, is an old archer's term. It means to error. It right. means to miss the mark. Miss the mark. Yeah. Right. And so let's say that we, we, we all miss the mark. We all inevitably miss the mark. We all inevitably fall to corruption and, and here and there, we all inevitably, um, yeah, you know, we make mistakes. And those mistakes can, can be incredibly costly to ourselves and to others. And so Christ is someone who, who represent, who says basically that's, that's true. And yet I see within you the divine potential to bring the world into a better place. Mm -hmm. And I will die so that that is possible. Mm -hmm. right. I will, I will, yeah, that's, that's the idea is that he's willing to die to be tortured so that the rest of the world can bring good into being. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense to worship Christ is to say to yourself, that's the principle that I want at the highest. And so I would say that, that I, I agree with that. I, mm -hmm. I don't believe in the literal truth of the biblical story. I don't, 
there are th some things about the Bible that I'm sure are not true, right? I wouldn't say that I'm sure that the resurrection is not true, but I will say this, that I don't think that within the scientific uh, materialist frame mm -hmm. that we will ever be able to justify that it happened, right? We'll never be able to say that it is scientifically true that Christ definitely rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. But I also think that we actually can't say that it's not true either, right? Yeah, I would say it has a low probability, but again, it's like... Sure, but it's not... Frame, sure. we, we cannot... Um, uh, we cannot completely falsify it. We can only say that from, from a scientific perspective, it's unlikely. We can't falsify Very it. Very unlikely. Yeah. Right. And so I'm comfortable with both of those statements, right? Uh, but I think that, that once I discovered that, I, I've slowly come to put that as the, the most important principle. Mm -hmm. And so within, you know, people have been talking about You've been doing parkour for 14 years? Mm -hmm. Okay, so do you remember the forums? Were you involved in the there, forums? This was, uh, yeah, just the... the you were a child, of... right? But, <laughs> but um, I was involved in like the parkour.net forums and urban free flow and all that stuff. And we used to talk all the time about parkour philosophy and how important the philosophy was and how parkour was really all about the philosophy. But fundamentally, nobody actually knew what the philosophy was or could really describe it. It was, it, it was incoherent, right? Like um, everyone talks about etre four pour etre two, right? Like be strong to be useful, but that's the motto of Méthode Naturelle and wasn't something that the founders of parkour even knew about until after it had already spread, right? As far as I understand. The actual um, motto of the parkour group or at least the tracers as far as I know was etre deux, right? To be and to last. Mm. So, um, the the founding fathers of it were really young when it spread right they were all in their early 20s when it spread so uh, many of them were not super highly educated and it spread in a language that wasn't their language outside of most of them right so so this idea of the philosophy of parkour was something that i think was deeply um was deeply attractive and there's something that comes up internally for the practitioner in doing it but it wasn't really described so when I discovered Jordan Peterson, it was like, I thought that he was talking about what, what we would really been doing, right? That, that, um, that essentially this was the confrontation with chaos, that we were going out to find our dragons and slay them. And it seems like you've come to the same conclusion based on some of the stuff you've written. Sure. What yeah, one uh, point there as well is this notion of efficiency, which I find mm -hmm. to be particularly interesting and quite unique to parkour and, and i don't know if you're aware of krishnamurti do you do krishnamurti who had <laughs> a remarkable influence on parkour through the lineage of bruce lee who yeah. influenced david and, and, and these guys but this seems seven in particular is that right krishnamurti oh uh, bruce no lee no seb right. seb's the big bruce lee guy right 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 exactly yeah and uh yeah bruce lee was uh when you compare some of his philosophy to krishnamurti's it's like okay you just sort of like switched some of the words around here so there's a very direct line from someone who is uh one of the most interesting thinkers of the um of the 20th century uh, and, and and quite a rebel in his own right as well um having this influence on, on parkour and the line there that i understand with efficiency is also 
present within Christianity to a degree that I, I don't really understand. It's something that I've heard Daniel mention a number of times. He said um, Jesus walked through the mountains, this sort of thing. So this ability to speak directly to the heart, to, to effectively not mince words, to, to speak in a way that communicates directly with the, with the, with the heart or with the soul of the person. There's also yeah. a sort of notion of efficiency. Um, and I think within Krishnamurti's idea, it's, it's really just a sort of abandon ideology, abandon useless ideas. Truth is a pathless land. Sort of don't don't waste your energy. And um, it's very much a core part of his philosophy. And that is obviously could be seen in, in Bruce Lee's work. And so it's 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 for me the principle within parkour that I've always connected to most clearly is is this idea of efficiency. But I think also has some quite interesting um, uh, sort of spiritual connotations of, of again not wasting energy um, yeah. and then you have to ask not wasting energy towards what and then that's a maybe that's a different conversation or maybe it's the same one well what pops up for me is perfection is not reached when there is nothing left to add but when there is nothing left to remove right mm. and so i think that we often are trying to acquire Right? We're trying to bring in, we're trying to expand our knowledge, expand this, expand. And we don't recognize that um, that removal is also really, really important. Right? Right? Even in growth, right? You, you cannot live unless the cells that are dead are eaten. But this, this necessity to, to allow aspects of the self to die uh, seems to be, um, harder to, harder to internalize, right? Nassim Taleb talks about via negativa, right? The negative life, the life that's, that it arises through cutting away all that is unnecessary. Jordan Peterson talks about like, how do we burn off the deadwood of our character, right? This is part of what we go to parkour for is as a place to burn off the deadwood of the character. Um, so I think that that balancing of those two aspects is a really powerful aspect of, of mm -hmm. understanding real self transformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that this is in itself an incredible recipe for self transformation or self actualization. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, the question of for what comes up. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> so that's, that's, I don't know. Um, I'll tell you what I what I've come to through Peterson and and mm -hmm. Verbeke and and um, various other influences. But so I, I came through encountering Peterson to the idea that that essentially, like what parkour was about, was the cultivation of a heroic self. Right? It was about proact. Like I actually think that the movie Fight Club is an extraordinarily insightful thing to understand the rise of parkour, right? Mm -hmm. that, that essentially the, the problem that Tyler Durden lays out is the problem that people who, who adopt parkour are, are answering, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's this problem of, of the hedonic treadmill and apathy and meaninglessness in life, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, well, how do we start to create our own values? And I think that that parkour is essentially a rediscovery of play, right? That's one aspect of it. And it's about the, the element of play that is about risk-taking and going to your edge 
and then being able to confront something that is that is undiscovered potential and to bring something out of it. So then I started to ask myself, well, what is what is the heroic individual? And you know, uh, part of this comes out of reading Maps of Meaning and, and Peterson's work, but uh, but we ended up with these different categories of you have to have vision, right? So this is represented by Horus, the Egyptian god, right? The capacity to see. Marduk, right? The Mesopotamian god has eyes all around his head, right? In order to confront a problem, you first have to be able to recognize that there is a problem, right? To not be blind to it. The second aspect of it is that you have to be able to then articulate the nature of the problem, right? This is uh, represented by, you know, the capacity for speech, you know, by, by, you know, you were writing about this recently, right? Like the, we, that words give us a capacity to conceptualize a problem in a way that is much yeah. more difficult without words. Yeah. And so, so there's something magical about that, right? And that's represented in many different, um, many different traditions. Right. Yeah. So, also in the animal world. Yeah. So, um, so then, you know, you could look at that as, as you know, someone like Socrates, right? As a power of words, or whomever you choose. And then there's the capacity to to emotionally handle the problem, right? Can you can you stand in the face of the problem with equanimity, right? And I like the Buddha as a as a as an exemplar of that. And then there is the physical strength to confront the problem. You have Hercules or Thor or something like that. And then there's skillfulness. Do you have the specific skills to accomplish it? And I like the Celtic god Luke as a representative of that. So these are the, the elements of the hero in our, in our perspective. So I laid these all out and I had this recognition that actually someone could have all of these and be evil, mm -hmm. right? That to, that to achieve greatness or you might even... In the, in the old sense, what we're talking about is virtue, right? In the, in the, in the, in the Latin sense of the word virtue, right? This, yeah. is, this is what it's describing. It's this capacity for action, right? Like in that sense, Genghis Khan is virtuous, right? He has an extraordinary capacity to change the world. Even Hitler, you could say is virtuous, right? He, his greatness was turned to evil, but he was not an insignificant human being, yeah. right? And the difference between the heroic individual and the monster is essentially where their capacity for greatness is directed. Mm -hmm. So having the capacity for greatness and, and cultivating that alone um, doesn't make the world a better place necessarily. It only produces the potential to make the world a better place. So to make the world a better place, you actually have to put yourself in relationship to um, the highest principle and the highest principle that I've been able to discover is that principle of agape. And I think that that is um, um, extraordinarily beautifully symbolized in the Christian story. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also say that it's extraordinarily beautifully symbolized in the Buddhist story. Mm. You could say that, um, that Christ is, is the example of a man who was willing to die that the world would be redeemed. And Buddha is the man who is willing to forego enlightenment to come back to the world that it may be redeemed. Mm -hmm. So there's a weird, there's a weird inversion, but parallelism of the two stories because Buddha goes and experiences the Nirvana that he sought. And he recognizes that he has the capacity to be in Nirvana forever, mm -hmm. but that the rest of the world will be left behind. Mm -hmm. 
And so he has to go out and show people how to get there. And I think that those two examples are extraordinarily profound teachers. Yeah. One, um, yeah, no, I really resonate with all, all you've said here. One, um, so I, I, I'm always thinking really in the context within this um, sort of meaning context of the sort of average person. Yeah. Like, you know, if the world is to change, it changes through the average person. And um, I'm not sure that's true, actually. Well, in, in, in a sense, um, the, the people who are listening to this conversation, a lot of them are going to be outliers in the sense mm -hmm. of just like statistical outliers. Yeah. They would have these interests. Um, and I think that the, the, the way that the world has changed for the worse has changed through the average person sense that the cultural influences um that we're being fed which are taking us really out of um the context of possibility that we occupy the, the, the mm -hmm. potential for for, for 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 love without the need for reciprocation or for um for, for the actualization of our own possibility or to the service of others whatever it is the cultural values that we're meeting um, that we're being fed are very much not in that direction. And, and so again, I, I find it's very important to relate all of these conversations into the, the, the average person. And the thing that I think is the most powerful emotively, um, and, and it's something that you'll see within, I, I, to my knowledge, all sort of world religions is, is mystery. And, um, and I think we also need to offer or, or there needs to be the offering of uh, of mystery. So just one anecdote here, I, 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 there was a, a children's book that I, I read when I was young and there was one moment where there's, a, there's sort of the, 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 the characters have found the thing that they're looking for and the, the baddies and the goodies are united and all of this and then they're, and they're in the submarine and then they see on the radar this big question mark appear and everyone starts freaking out and there's one person who knows what it is but they're not going to tell anyone and it's, it's really intense, mysterious moment. And I still think about that from time to time. It just sort of pops back in my mind. So it, it, this to me speaks of the, the sort of primacy of, of mystery and how interesting mystery is. And then we could also relate that to the um, the orienting response, which I know Peterson's done a lot of, of work on this sort of, um, this sense of uh, exploration, this sense of uh, motivated approach and, and yeah. curiosity that derives from recognizing something that is uh, sort of maybe the outline is vaguely familiar but we can't really see the detail something like that mm -hmm. it's not so unfamiliar that we're afraid but it's unfamiliar enough that we're interested to, to approach it something like this and so I think within this sort of um, sort of integrated um, scientific spiritual sort of secular philosophy that I, I believe we're discussing I, I think we also need something of, of, of mystery and, and, and I suppose that could be, um, I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts on what that mystery is for the average person. Um, something like the maximization of potential and the minimization of harm. But I don't know if that's sort of uh, sexy and interesting enough or sort of symbolic enough. Perhaps, perhaps you have the, uh, the uh, symbolism for this, but, but even then it's like this ancient symbolism. I'm not sure if it, mm -hmm. if it um, sort of meshes with the, with the modern mind. Mystery, I, I wanna grab onto that. I think there's something very interesting there. I think that 
a lot gets blamed on Descartes, and I don't want to uh, to pile right. on, and I don't understand uh, his work <laughs> quite well enough to 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 make this claim with certitude. But I have this sense that that Western culture, in particular, has been addicted to certainty, right? And certainty um, is actually the closing off of the world to mystery, and that without mystery. Um, there's no capacity in some sense for the transcendent. This has, uh, this has been very spiritually poisonous to us. Right? And I often mention this book and the, the more that I think about this book, the more that I think that like everybody really needs to read it. It's a difficult book, but I think that it, it is so, it's so symbolic and resonant with what we are talking about, um, which is a book uh, it's a series of books called The Second Apocalypse by R. Scott Baker. Right? Mm. And essentially, um, Baker says that if um, if God is dead, then fantasy is his graveyard. Right? And it's within, it's within the world of fantasy literature that essentially we get to revisit a world where meaning is literal. And this is what attracts us to Tolkien and Lewis and then all of their descendants. Yeah. Um, but Baker's take on that is that we, we feel deeply unmoored from the sense of meaning and that this is really disturbing to us. But that if we look back at, at the Old Testament, if we look back at the Greek gods, if we look back at um, Vedanta and all these things, what we find is actually something horrific. Right. And so he wants to take us into a world that where all those things are literally true, right? Where men are spiritually superior to women just because the gods like men more than women. And snakes are spiritually uh, superior to pigs because the gods like uh, uh, snakes more than women. And this isn't, and this is just arbitrary. It's just the, the nature of the universe, which is arbitrary for no, no good reason. Right. And so he gives us, the world of, of world-born men, which is essentially like um, almost like Bronze Age, uh, the Bronze Age Near East and Greece, right? Mm. And then he gives us uh, a, a group of monks called the Dunyane, who essentially have studied the principle of causation for 2000 years and engage in a, in a, a series of eugenics to create perfectly logical people. And in some sense, they represent modernity. And then he gives us the Inkori, who are these aliens who have crash landed on the planet. And they, they represent, in some sense, something like postmodernism and the collapse of all value systems to, to hedonic pleasure. And their goal becomes the closing off of the world to the outside. Right? They, they realize that their, that their, their, their pursuit of hedonic pleasure um, means that they are damned in the eyes of the gods. And so their reaction to that is to close the world off to the gods. And so in order, what they've realized is in order to do that, they have to, they have to kill everyone but 144,000 people, which I think is, is probably uh, something symbolic about the ideas of the elect in Calvinism. I'm not really sure where he got that number from, but something, I'm, I'm sure it's something like that. So, 
read the books and then we'll talk about them because I need to talk to people about them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, Baker is really playing in the same sandbox as Peterson and Verveke. And ultimately he, he doesn't have a good answer, but he's asked all the most brutal questions mm -hmm. and grappling with the questions that he's put forth in the symbolic way that he's done is extraordinarily powerful. And then, and then read it in contrast to Peterson and Verbeke, and you, you start to see okay how we can how we can map a way out. Yeah. I think, but, um, so, so there is and within modernism, let's say, this 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 desire to close the world to mystery to create, you know, the idea within Descartes was something like being able to see the world as like the principle of causation says that what comes from before determines what comes after. If you understood all everything that came before, then you could understand everything that comes after. Right. And so then all mystery would be disappointed. If you have a grand unifying theory of physics, um, then, then, then essentially everything should be predictable at some point. Yeah. That's the idea. Cases, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't actually seem like that's the way the world works because what we discover with quantum physics is at the very bottom of reality is uncertainty, mm -hmm. right? That all we have at the most basic level is probability. Mm -hmm. And that then we have this thing of emergent characteristics as we move up layers. And so now reductionist science has sort of, um, in some ways it's run its ground, right? Like we, like we haven't made major major, um, major discoveries in physics since basically the 1960s, right? We are stuck, right? And we're still like technology is basically still just cannibalizing the discoveries of Albert Einstein and, you know, and Niels Bohr and all those guys, uh, you know, von Neumann and Feynman. Um, but, but string theory is not producing new insights that allow new technologies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. in, in that sense, um, yeah, in, in that sense, Eric Weinstein is yeah. <laughs> some, something of a myth maker, right? Because he's yes. saying, uh, yeah. he's sort of making the sacrifice of ridiculing himself and putting yeah. geometric unity out, which I haven't read. But um, there's uh, yeah, there's a real call to action there. Like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm working on a sort of theory, uh, sort of theory of everything for learning at the moment, and I feel very inspired by that uh, willingness to. Um, come from a, a not strictly academic background and put myself out there and take that risk and, and i think that sort of um yeah gift of agency is, is something that we that we need particularly particularly eric as well because he has this sort of um uh autodidact uh, respect for the autodidact narrative and you've seen his uh, spiel on kung fu panda things like this it's like relating um yeah. the uh the, the, the gift of yeah, the gift of agency, the gift of self-teaching is, is the thing that allowed yeah. Poe, the Kung Fu Panda, to you know, transcend. Like this, this sort of, and, and then, you know, relating this to um, well, I don't know, Hendrix and um, um, whoever else, these, these uh, Richard Faraday, all of these, um, Michael Faraday, mm -hmm. uh, musicians and scientists who were groundbreaking yeah. who came from a you know, non-institutional background. So there's like there's some really interesting questions here. Um, I've been exploring this a bit with this idea of with this idea of the orienting response and um, yeah. uh, this idea of uh, Jack Sparrow's broken compass <laughs> being the uh, being the compass that it doesn't take you where you think you should go, 
but it takes you where you want to go. And it's like, maybe there's a sort of contrasting, um, but it seems that the thing that you most deeply want to learn about will also harness the process most suited for learning. So that process of um, sort of um, uh, dopaminergic and uh, acetylcholinergic, I don't know what the word is, yeah. um, processes of... Uh, um, Acetylcholinergic. Cholinergic, that's it. Yeah, yeah cholinergic. Um, these, these processes that... Um, uh, actually, I haven't studied this for a little while now. I can't remember, but essentially the processes that are suited for yeah. um, learning through error and learning mm -hmm. through approach, learning through positive and negative feedback yeah. loops. And that seems to be the association between the, the, the two is dopamine is a positive feedback loop. Keep doing the thing that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, acetylcholine is a negative feedback loop, retreat and regulate. And this sort of emotive process uh, through so, this yeah. neurotransmitter yeah. gateway. It's like, very yeah. So yeah. If, if you jump off a cliff and you get a, and you're, you know, you get a, a shot of dopamine along with uh, epinephrine and cortisol, then you want to do it again. You get too much acetylcholine, and then you're like, okay, that was enough. Yeah, you need to like regulate. Yeah, retreat, save, regulate. Save yourself. Um, that, that, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not certain, but that might be what I was reading, which is quite interesting. So, yeah, and sorry, I'm all over the place, but I was just sure. thinking, you know, uh, Dom falls on his face from three stories and gets a hit of dopamine and everybody else doesn't right and that's 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 what explains in some sense the ability of some people to to move in this direction more easily like like you mentioned earlier and this relates to the theory of learning that i'm creating or accumulating is um is the the what sort of the, the narrative you believe determines the world you perceive so it's like two people go through the same experience one has a different um uh, belief system or a different story or a different goal mm -hmm. depending on that goal the experiences will be interpreted differently and then this is also yeah. the sort of like what i understand of the sort of petersonian i petersonian yeah. peterson's idea of meaning you can say is, petersonian we use it all we can say Petersonian. sort of meaning is is uh as valence meaning yes. is um do i want to move towards this or away from this and mm -hmm. that existence is dependent on a goal so if you yeah. don't have a goal you can't you don't you don't have a sort of biological uh, valence you don't have a, a uh, sense of good or bad if you don't have a thing that that is relative to yeah and, yeah um, yeah so, so it's, it's yeah it's, it's interesting I, I don't know what dom's like kind of greater like telos is or i'm sure i don't know if he's like thinking in this context or he's just sort of like you know he's 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 uh why he's able to maybe like take such a hit and come back and and, and not go into this it, it, it might just be a personality thing a sort of biological thing but so, it's a frame yeah. of reference that is is extremely important because it's going to determine the quality ultimately of, of our experiences and i think it's it is a huge power in uh, parkour and a lot of these practices saying that you've gone into some hardship mm -hmm. what can you take away from this and you know post-traumatic growth and this sort of idea is like also very much related to this like um um, the narrative you believe determines the world you perceive. It's like, okay, I can go into this experience and not be overwhelmed by it. Um, or if I am overwhelmed by it, I can observe something in myself. And so, uh, yeah, it's interesting to put that in the context of Dom falling uh, three stories under his, under his face. 
Um, it's funny. I just wanted to mention that I like felt the ghost of Eric Weinstein on my shoulder as I was talking about physics, and then and then he picked it up. So that that's yeah. fun. It's fun to have a conversation yeah, yeah. with someone who's, who's conversing in these things. Um, I've had a couple of those as well in these yeah. conversations. Um, I wanted to go back to this idea of mystery for a second because mm. I wanted to bring Verveke in again, and I I highly highly recommend that you dig into Verveke. But um, one one thing that's come up in some of the conversations that he has is he they use this tr this terminology of the suchness and the moreness of being, which is a very it's very difficult, right? But the idea is that. Um, that the sacred or the, the divine, right, always has this sense of, of, of inviting us forward and retreating from us so that there's always more for us to see, mm -hmm. right? And that essentially anything that taps into the sacred has this characteristic, right? And so he would describe like our experience with parkour if it's really done right, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a sense of the sacred, right? Because we go to the, we go to the place that we've gone over and over again, and we discover something new, something more. And the the ability to completely conceptualize what's possible keeps getting blown up, right? right? There's always, there's always more, right? And this allows us to, to stay within the process of transformation or, you know, to, to map it to the Peterson model. It's like, we can continually access that approach motivation system and that making meaning out of the world. And that's fundamentally what, what, um, what we like, right? You might say that a human being is a, in some deep essence, a meaning maker. And maybe this is, this is rooted in that orienting instinct. Right. So the way that I like, you know, I think, I think people don't take seriously enough the idea of human nature. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's actually like when I talk about evolved move play, the first fundamental principle is that human beings have a nature and that by understanding it, we can better live, right. We can live more meaningful lives. Mm -hmm. And then an assumption about that is that actually a human being is something that wants to transform themselves in a positive way. And that, and that there is a, there is a, there's an archetypal self, right? That represents the, the highest potential ex expression of who you are and that movement towards that self is intrinsically meaningful. Mm -hmm. right? And so you should do that. It's not the only source of meaning, right? Right, like um, we could talk about the serotonin system versus the dopamine system, right? Mm -hmm. The dopamine system attracts us forward and the serotonin mm -hmm. system gives us the sense of, of well-being where we are and we actually yeah. want both of these systems to be activated yeah, yeah. in our life right. and so i say that when someone when someone has the right movement practice right and the, the right set of practices it it orients them within the experience of being such that it is better right now right that you are connected deeply to what is meaningful which is mm -hmm. um the body the self, the mind, right? Like this thing that you're in, what is the relationship between all the parts of it? How do they integrate? How is the experience of it? And then the, the environment that we move through. And for me in particular, the natural environment has so much more richness and offer of connection for us. And then the social environment, right? So movement, movement, um, mindfulness, 
nature and and community these are the these are the fundamental bases for what we are so we can we can have a practice that says right here in this moment i am experiencing these things in a better way right and then we can also have a practice that says i come back to nature and i understand it more deeply i am able to move through it with more mastery i i go into solitude and i come back to community and my community is stronger and my capacity to communicate is stronger and my capacity to love and feel loved is better right? and my my capacity for mental clarity all those things that's that's essentially what um yeah that's essentially what i think it's all about yeah there's a really interesting perspective that i think is a great criticism of um some of the kind of maybe postmodernists. everything's sort of yeah. relative or everything's um uh, constructive that we are deeply co-evolved with the universe reality that we occupy mm -hmm. um, and this can be seen one sort of entry-level uh, analogy for this would be perhaps the vestibular system which is yeah. you know, made of these three semicircular canals it seems to represent the three planes of motion or maybe there's more but mm -hmm. very roughly and so there's there's this um, um, connection there just a simple example between the outer world that we occupy and the inner um, apparatus and then the, and then there are many other examples of this like the length of the of the uh, of the synapses communing, communicating information at a distance so we perceive light and we know that okay, that things over there in a universe with perhaps two dimensions of movement the vestibular system would be shaped differently or yep. the synapses would be would be you know one point so it's like just those analogies to say, okay, so we're we're in, we're not external to. That's sort of the narrative, the popular narrative is that we're sort of we're sort of been plopped yeah. into existence, but we're very much part of it. The question then is, how deep does that go? And then, so I think, <laughs> yeah, to I me, it goes all the way. Is, yeah, right. Well, right. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is this is this is like maybe somewhat tangential, but it, it's sort of illustrative. I'm really, I, I I'm very deeply skeptical of transhumanism. And okay. like one of the, I, I had a, a conversation with my, my, one of my best friends, the guy I started parkour with many years ago. And we were talking about like the problem of grand narrative, right? Like the Christian grand narrative was maybe living in its ghost, but it's sort of collapsed. And then, then the question is, what do we do? Do we, are we able to recover it and go back to it and bring it back in a way that it works now? Um, and that's maybe what Jonathan Pajot and Jordan Peterson and Paul Vanderclay are trying to do. Or maybe, maybe we move past um, narrative and move into a practice and a, and a, a way of, of connecting to self-transcendence that's less dependent on narrative. And that's something like John Verbeke. Yeah. But what I see a lot of people doing is replacing these narratives, right? I feel like, you know, um, critical theory inflected social justice has 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 in many ways sort of re it's it's um um it's it's falling into christian symbolism and and repurposing it right so that you know there's a reason that that um that uh, that at Black Lives Matter protests, right? Like white people are washing the feet of of black people as a 
like a signal of the sin of of white privilege, right? Like that's all. Symbolism happens. It's the symbolism, <laughs> right? But, the, but let the, me continue. The veneration of the yeah, sure, go ahead. Because I don't I don't want to get too deep into politics. What sure. I wanted to get yeah. to is actually was uh, was the idea that that one grand narrative that a lot of people are attracted to, and this is the this is what Eric Weinstein is at, is the mm -hmm. is getting off this planet, right? The idea okay. is that is that the, the, the singular purpose is to sort of seed the universe with human life and that that can provide it. But I don't think that you can be a human and not be an earthling. Right. I think that human beings might be able to seed the, the universe with aliens that have human DNA and human ancestry. But I think that, um, our psychology, our neurology, our physiology is so built for this place yeah. that any any version of a human being that survives on a different planet is so, going to have, have to be so radically altered that they, we, we wouldn't recognize them as the same thing anymore. And that, and that the problem of life on earth will go on no matter if they, they exist or not. It's like we won't have solved how to behave as earthlings because there are now marslings mm -hmm. right marslings will be very very different from us and they will have some of the same problems that we've always had um and then they'll have some other set of problems that have to do with yeah. the way that you have to neurologically psychologically and physiologically be right. adapted to this new environment yeah yeah right so go so so you know I, I was talking to someone online about this and they were saying you know humans will have an interstellar civilization like that will happen and i was like that's just a statement of faith right you're you're you now have you've just replaced the kingdom of heaven with interstellar civilization right right and you you you're still desperate for a grand unifying narrative mm -hmm. um but i actually think in some sense getting people to operate from a deeper sense of love and a deeper understanding of the truth is more more realistic than intergalactic civilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it totally. does a lot better job of actually getting people to grow here now. Yeah. Okay. So that was that was quite a, a rant. <laughs> Hopefully that was interesting to you. No, that, but, landed, that, that landed. Uh, the spaceship definitely landed there. Um, one. Uh, one number of things. One thing, um, I think the uh, sort of crit critical theory stuff is maybe they have a sense of mystery, and that mystery is only orientated towards the reduction of harm, and it doesn't have that that other end of the spectrum, which is in increasing potential. In, in fact, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that I think that's an, an interesting perspective, and I, I'm. I always like to give the devil his due, and that's often said in in the favor of some you know right right wing yeah. perspective. But I think it's interesting to give it in the, in, in the context of of what I understand of, of critical theory and these things, and and you know they're speaking a lot about trauma, and and the language that they use is very very reflective on um, like things like polyvagal theory, which again, as I said earlier, it's not it's not quite clear how um, scientific that is, but it's very interesting that they're. At, at least the, the sort of intention of origin is like we have to recognize the internal the, the reality of internal experiences and how this influences um 
uh, action in the world and um, and then they take I think quite far this sort of there's obviously a truth to this sort of um, uh, victim um, if I'm in a traumatized state my possible actions are going to be much more limited than someone who is not in that traumatized state yeah. and they, they make many many errors many many errors but I think that is a, a very reasonable um, pre uh, supposition um, but yeah it, it's I mean, it, it, again, like descriptive, prescriptive, like there, there's some merit to some of these ideas. And then when you, yeah, I, I don't think we need to need to go down there. And I'm not educated enough to, to really yeah. speak more on this on this topic. But yeah, I think within the, 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 it's a really interesting point that the, if we radically change our environment, we will change radically who we are um, because we are so connected to our environment. Um, and uh, Peterson made a really interesting point recently that the there's a sort of bi-directional um the the, the the genes affect consciousness and consciousness affects genes mm -hmm. in the sense of the, the types of mates that are chosen naturally will affect the types of, of um will, will naturally affect the the, the the genetic offspring if i if we you know if we select for like the most aggressive person we're going to get the most aggressive person but he makes the point that in nature, it's often the most reciprocal uh, individual who is at the top of the hierarchy, and, and you don't find that many hierarchies of force. You find mo more sort of hierarchies of um, like social competence, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and, 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 and and just to, yeah. just to round that one off, um, that the that the implication of this is that our genetics are perhaps shaped with the um, ancestry of sort of social competence. So that there is some sort of like almost like um you know, genetic moral blueprint of um like social reciprocation uh, and, and a value for yeah, a value for community and i think this is also a sort of challenge of the uh i guess kind of like neoliberal perspective that we're all kind of at war with each other and you know, the state of nature is uh what is it life is uh short nasty brutish and short something like yeah that, that, that there's actually the reality of that is is we're more British, nasty sort of and short that's hobbes uh, hobbes right I'm but I, I, I believe that yeah. that's the sort of founding philosophy of the neoliberal attitude of um kind of greed is good and trickle down but I, I, yeah I'm that's like objectivism and ayn rand is the idea that yeah essentially yeah, yeah. i mean the idea is that um is that naked self-interest ultimately orients us towards something that creates the good through the mar uh, through the mechanism of market capitalism, mm -hmm. um, which I think uh, is partially true and also yeah. Uh, yeah, also yeah. contains some major yeah. uh, missing pieces. And it's interesting that the presupposition there is seemingly erroneous, at least contrasted to this frame that the oh. ancestors that survived were the most socially uh, reciprocal or socially competent one but they yeah. sort of power hierarchy have you read um jonathan Haidt's book the righteous mind no i'm, I'm aware of Haidt. yeah very good book but he talks about this he uh he, he he gives a very beautiful um sort of breakdown of why the assumption of homo economicus is uh is false right. um so highly recommend that um well, we've been on for two hours and 20 minutes now, 
And right. um, I feel like you and I could could go on and on, and uh, I'm sure, sure we will. Um, but we should probably uh, end this for now because um, yeah, the audience only has so much attention. Yes, um, not, I'm not yet Joe Rogan, um, sure. but uh, but yeah, this is really enjoyable, and I look forward to future conversations, Flynn. And I'm, any any closing words, or how can people find you? You know, where should what should they know about yeah, you? Yeah. Um main two ventures the exploration group which we didn't get to speak about um which is something very interesting and, and strange and wonderful that i put yeah. together which is essentially a group exploring the application of scientific principles mm -hmm. and the exploration element is the uncertainty of how they can be applied yeah. so we're taking this bottom-up approach of um here are some things that are true about the world what can we do with them yeah and it's a really wonderful thing. So you can, you can check that out on uh, flindisney.com slash the exploration group. Each word is hyphenated. Nice. Uh, and I have the bridge with Flynn Disney podcast, um, which is on its first episode with uh, Daniel Illabaka, who is a fascinating uh, specimen. So um, yeah, all, all of these things you can find on my Instagram. There's a, a link tree in the, in the bio. So you can click that and find these. Uh, these uh these things and uh yeah i think the, the next exploration group so we run these sort of every two months or so uh the, the block is about six six to eight weeks and the next one i believe we're going to be doing on adaptation as a concept and kind of exploring this idea so uh yeah nice very cool well thank you very much for being on the podcast and i look forward to our our next conversation yeah likewise man. hey you've reached the end of another evolve move play podcast if you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve Into Play podcasts. But audios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.